And the psychologists have taught us that if you are insecure, your mental bandwidth shrinks, your IQ goes down. Now it's unfair of the state and the rest of us to expect people who are chronically insecure to be making the decisions that you and I would think are desirable and sensible when they are in circumstances where insecurity is diminishing their capacity to be rational. It's unfair. Welcome to episode 24 of the Mindful Love podcast. This is part two of our interview with Guy Standing. This guest came to us as a request from audience members. So in this episode, you'll hear some questions from the audience and some questions that Jonathan and I just had to ask Guy. Please enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? I was raised to believe, and I was raised poor, I was raised to believe that I could become. And in the belief that I could become, I became, right? Um, so mobility is something I've studied a lot. Uh, lots of economists talk about mobility. And it sounds like there's something tangential that you're talking about that is like mobility is not enough. Um, a, it's, it's declining. I, I understand it's declining, but that's not really what you're talking about. Can you, can you bring mobility into the discussion a little bit? Yeah, I, there, there's, I've got a section in my book, The Corruption of Capitalism, um, which is about what's called the, the Gatsby curve. And, and the Gatsby curve is basically that there's been a huge decline in social mobility. Yeah. More and more, and even though the, the elite, you know, you hear stories every day of people becoming super wealthy, et cetera, overnight and, and joining the plutocracy rather than the elite. But in actual fact, the numbers of people in that situation are relatively small, except that more and more of wealth in our society is inherited. I mean, it used to be that in, in a country like my own in the United Kingdom, something like 30% of all the wealth in the country was inherited wealth. Today, it's over 60% of total wealth. Okay, and that's been the same in all OECD countries and in many other many developing countries. Inherited wealth is is rentier capitalism, Mark II, because it's merely a transfer of wealth and an accumulation. So in many countries, you have a situation again in Europe, the, where I know the figures, but it better than elsewhere, where the value of wealth relative to income has dramatically increased. Hmm. So that, that, that wealth used to be 300% of GDP. Now it's over 700% of GDP. In other words, more and more of the income and the wealth is, is going to the owners of property and it's an inherited property. There's a rigidity there. And of course, what this means, and that's the essence of rentier capitalism, is that the whole process is transferring 
income and wealth more and more to a minority, and apparently you're in privileged to be in that minority, and less and less is going to people who are being pushed into the precariat. Now, what is interesting is that since the books were published, I've been invited a number of times to Silicon Valley and by uh, big tech and big corporations. And I've been invited to speak to financiers and so on. And among the more uh, reflective people in those groups, and I won't give names, but among them are people who say, well, we know we're winning too much. We know that this is unsustainable in the longer term, and we need to move in the direction you're talking about, Guy. And it's surprising, you know, who have been saying that. But there is a feeling, I think, that if you have a rentier capitalism, more and more you're going to be subject to crises. Hmm. More and more the financial crises and the chronic uncertainty with which we have to live is great creating situations where the state and the financial institutions have to rescue finance and big corporations because they're too big to fail. If they fail, there would be uh, repercussions for the whole economic system. And therefore, they bail them out and in doing so, further increase the inequality unjustifiably because the, the winners have not done anything to gain that extra. During the pandemic, governments doled out billions and billions of dollars and pounds and euros to prop up the system and vastly increased inequalities because the main gainers were the big corporations, the big financial institutions and the elite and the, the plutocracy. Now, that system is so unstable that sooner or later you're going to have a breakdown. And we are having a breakdown in the sense that living standards of half the population have been dropping. Suicide rates have been going up. Mm. All the pandemics of stress and rising morbidity and cancers and so on mean that we have deaths of despair, as the phrase, the, the phrase is, and we're seeing life expectancy in the most rich countries in the world declining. Now, this is, this is just a disgusting situation. And it's, it's up to us, I think, to be very clear that it's intolerable and that we mustn't be mealy-mouthed about opposing what is going on and calling a spade a spade and getting on with dismantling rentier capitalism and finding the tools and supporting the tools. And that's why I support basic income. We can discuss that in a moment. But I not only support basic income, I think we need a whole progressive agenda, which is redistributive of a number of key assets in our societies. Okay. Terry, can I ask another question real quick, a follow-up? Okay, cool. So, um, 
I want to I want to actually bring it down to an. I understand the whole cultural view and the the, the big picture view, but I want to bring it down to something that's like, uh, what what is true life success for an individual? What is it that I'm trying to accomplish? You know, we call it on this podcast. We call it true wealth. I've heard it referred to as happiness. I've heard it referred to as well-being. But from an individual standpoint, what is it I'm trying to accomplish? Well, I I go back to uh, ancient Greece with the conceptualizing of a response to that question. The ancient Greeks divided time into, into four types. First was labor, which is what we've discussed earlier. Then there's work, which is praxis, what is done in and around the home with relatives and friends. Then there's recreation. And fourth, there is skole or shole, which was not just leisure in the modern consumerist sense of the term, but was actually about finding a life where you participate in the life of the polis and you you recover the commons in the agora, in, in our commoning. And I think that we are now at a verge, and the final part of my cycle of books is called a politics of time. When we need a politics to recover our control of our time so that we can become commoners and participate in a sharing existence, a, an existence that is closer to nature, that involves slowing down, involves educating ourselves and being educated by participating in a social life and phasing out the manipulative mechanisms, which we're, we're all subject to, and we're all human and we all give in to many of those urges, where we, we take a less materialistic approach to life. My, my sort of, uh, intellectual influences that I count most precious include, include Hannah Arendt mm. with her wonderful book, The Human Condition. It includes William Morris with his whole arts and crafts orientation in the late 19th century. It includes the, the great commoners like Rachel Carson, where we have people who have said there is a better way of living in which we don't chase consumer goods, don't chase the extra dollars, the extra thing, and measure ourselves by those passing uh, totems of life, but actually value time. And there we go back to Seneca. You know, the, the most precious thing we have and the only thing we have is time, and yet we waste it. We need to get control of our time. I have a concept in the books called the precariatized mind, the sense that you don't know what is the optimum way of allocating your time because there are too many options and you don't know which way to turn. And if you're in the precariat, a wrong decision could be fatal and therefore you almost paralyzed. We need to escape from the precariatized mind where we slow down, where we appreciate things, where we recreate 
our existence with nature. And I think the pandemic, in an odd sort of way, it's been hell, we know, it's been horrible. I don't believe in this great resignation thesis, but I do believe it's making a lot more people sensible about time. And, and that, I think, is, is a really important part of life, that we need, we need a politics of time. So the, the first question from the audience has to do with uh, UBI. And um, so basically the person wanted us to get an update from you of how you see UBI um, transitioning post-COVID um, and how do you think the politics on the left and right will influence its implementation or not implementation? Well, thank you for the question. Um, I've been advocating basic income uh, for more than three decades. And I've, you're listening to someone who's had the, whether well, privilege, I think it's a privilege, some people would think it's a madness, to have been able to pilot uh, basic income and advise people doing so in four continents of the world and have analyzed the data from pilots and so on. So I can actually speak with experience. I believe that a basic income, and I don't use the term UBI, I think that for pragmatic terms, you would have to have it at the national level. Uh, and therefore, you would have to say that for people coming into the country, they would have to wait for a period uh, before they get it. That doesn't mean you don't give migrants help. You should give them help, but it should be other, other mechanisms rather than and through the basic income. And people who are living outside their country wouldn't receive the basic income paid to residents inside the country. So I don't like the term universal, but basic income. A basic income would be a modest payment each month as a, as a right to each individual, man, woman, equal, regardless of work status, regardless of marital, household status, or wealth or whatever, it's a right. And you could tax back, you could claw it back from the wealthy if you wish or whatever you wish to do, but it's an economic right and it's individual and it's unconditional in behavioral terms. If you break the law, that's a separate issue, then the law should take care of that. And the, the, the idea is that you would gradually build up the level as your mechanisms for funding it were concerned. I believe, and that's what I've argued in the book on basic income, that the fundamental justification for a basic income is ethical. It's philosophical. It's not instrumental. Yes, it would reduce poverty. Yes, you could use it to reduce inequalities, good things, great things. But it's fundamentally, first of all, about justice. The wealth of all of us, the wealth of society, the income of all of us is far more to do with the efforts and achievements of the many generations who came before us than anything we do ourselves. But I don't know if your ancestors or mine or other people's contributed more or less. And if we allow private inheritance of private wealth, then we should see a basic income as a sort of public inheritance, a common dividend on the collective wealth to give people basic security. 
And I believe that that goes well with uh, a religious justification. I was very pleased that the Pope last year came out in favor of basic income, because I think that if you are religious, I'm not religious, but if you are religious, you could say that God has given us unequal talents, including the talent of making money or having high IQ or whatever. And a basic income would be a sort of compensatory payment for not having those talents. And it's also a matter of ecological justice. We know evidence is piling up that it's the wealthy who pollute more and are contributing to global warming far more than the poor. And the poor are paying the price to a much greater extent of global warming and pollution. So it would be a compensatory mechanism. There are other justice arguments, but the second argument is it would give everybody basic security. And the psychologists have taught us that if you are insecure, your mental bandwidth shrinks, your IQ goes down. Now it's unfair of the state and the rest of us to expect people who are chronically insecure to be making the decisions that you and I would think are desirable and sensible when they are in circumstances where insecurity is diminishing their capacity to be rational. It's unfair. And basic security is also a public good. It's a superior, what we economists call a superior public good in the sense that if we all have it, the value to each and every one of us goes up. That's very, very important. And the third justification is it would enhance freedom. We all say we believe in freedom. We all say that. All politicians say it. But you can't be free unless you have access to the material resources to be moral. That's liberal freedom. Freedom to be moral. It's unfair of us to expect someone who is in chronic insecurity, chronic poverty, to be making moral decisions. They've got to take whatever they can get. And we would do the same. But it's also a matter of Republican freedom. A woman is not free if she has to ask her husband or partner if she can do X or Y. Even if she knows that 99% of the time, he will say yes. She's only free when she can say, I decide. And she can only do that when she has her own resources. And that applies to every individual person in society. Now, those are the ethical reasons. I'm privileged, as I said, that I've tested it out with others, obviously. And there are, in the moment, something like 80 basic income pilots underway. I'm advising on some very interesting ones. But those that have been completed, and I've summarized the results in these books, have shown a consistent set of results. Whether it's in Canada, it's in India, it's in Africa, or it's in Britain, or in Finland, or wherever, right? Every pilot has shown that it results in a reduction of stress, mental illness, and physical illness. Every single pilot, even going back to the Manitoba pilot and the pilots in North Carolina and elsewhere, they have shown this result. It's also shown a better 
schooling achievement for the young. Huge improvements in many cases. And here it leads to the next point that I want to shout at the screen. But I won't, but I want to, because people continue to have a horrible prejudice. Basic income results in an increase in work, not a decrease in work. The critics who've never tested it and never gone through the evidence or gone through the reasoning are always saying, if you gave basic income, people would become lazy and they'd sit back on their backside. That's not the human condition. The human condition is you want to improve the situation from where you are today. You want your children to have a better life. You want your family to have a better life. You want your community to have a better life. And this actually energizes people and gives people a sense of confidence. In our pilots, we've seen huge improvements in productivity, in work motivation, in risk-taking, all the things we talk about. And ultimately, a basic income strengthens social solidarity. It makes people more tolerant. It makes people more altruistic. And for me, there's a whole set of evidence and studies and thinkings that are coming together. And during the pandemic, I was asked by Massive Attack to do a musical video. Now, when they asked me, I thought, what on earth? Why are they asking me, a boring economist, to do a musical video on the precariat and basic income. It was made last July. It went up, massive attack, and you can see it on Facebook and elsewhere. And so far, I think a half a million people at least have seen the English version, and it's come out in Italian and Spanish and German and, I don't know, other languages. And it's, it's sort of really caught a nerve somewhere. That sort of thing doesn't happen to someone like myself again, but I'm very pleased I did it. I, I initially wasn't sure if I should, uh, but it, it's, it, was, it gave me an opportunity to do in a short form these arguments about what basic income is all about. And I thank Massive Attack for, for inviting me to do that. So, Guy, we're going to put that in the show notes. Absolutely, we're going to give you another bump on the on the massive attack video. Um, you, you called me out in that. I was going to ask you that question, uh, but I was going to ask it a little different way. And I understand anecdotes, not a statistic, but I'm thinking about myself, and I'm thinking about growing up, and I'm thinking about growing up without anything. And 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 I, I we were um, what what's the word? We I guess we would probably be uh, precariat in my childhood. Um, and so that stimulated me to achieve. It stimulated me to work hard, to, to do all the things I had to do to become where I am now, which is I'm not, I'm not you know, Bezos, obviously, uh, but I think I'm the second tier that we talked about earlier. And I wonder if I would have worked as hard, if I would have been wor as worried about it, had I had a basic income. Now, I could argue that even if I didn't achieve as much, I would have had a better life. I could, I could make that argument. I'm just wondering where you fall in that, hey, uh, checking my own personal motivation, it was the lack 
that created the motivation for my success. I really believe I can tie those two. Well, all I can tell you, it remind, when listening to you say that, and I, you're not the first to articulate that particular perspective, obviously, reminded me of R.H. Tawney's famous book on equality. And he has a wonderful uh, description of tadpoles in a pond. And most of the tadpoles get eaten and those who manage to get up on the bank are very few and they crow down at the, to the, the remaining tadpoles. If you were like me, you could be up here and they, they are very smug about it. Um, we, there was a wonderful, what I call in the book, the basic income book, an accidental pilot in North Carolina. It, it was a coincidence that at the time of the local Indian community declaring that all the income from the casinos would be distributed in the form of a basic income to everybody. And at the same time, by chance, a local university began a lifetime uh, longitudinal study of child development. Okay, and they they mapped and followed the children in these communities over 20 years. It was very interesting that the children in families where they had effectively a basic income, on average, taking into account of other background characteristics, controlling for those statistically, by the age of 16, were one year ahead in terms of educational development, one year. And there the results, when they looked at the evidence, were basically that it had given families a greater sense of stability and atmosphere of conscious family stability and linking together. And this is goes to what we've also find that people, I'm not saying you lack this quality, uh, Jonathan, so don't, don't think I am, but they not only grow up with better mental capacities, but also better values mm. because they've come from a situation. I, I came from a very, very poor background in this just after the second world war my, I didn't, I didn't eat meat until I was seven. I, we had extreme poverty, okay? And I'm sure that is impaired both health and my mental capacities. I don't know how much, we don't know. But, but the, the thing is, I don't want any child to be struggling and to use that as an excuse to, to deprive them of a basic income seems to be obscene. And I'm sure that's not what you're meaning. But the, I mean, the, the giving to children of a sense of basic security, you know you will get your medicine, you know you will get food, you know your parents, etc., is enormously valuable. Our Indian pilot, where I used to weep when I used to go out to the communities, where we saw the effects of the basic income on nutrition, on their capacity to go to school, to learn, to be able to learn is enormously empowering in the long term, okay? Now you're the frog, 
And there are lots of, there are a few frogs out there, but I think most frogs, if they are educated, and I'm, and I'm no, you are, are wise enough to say, I would not want any child to be going through the deprivations that maybe you experienced, I experienced when we were very young. No way, okay? And I think that's what it's all about. That's why I'm impressed by some of these, these plutocrats, Davos, who openly told me in, in the debates, we agree with you that, that we need a situation of a people having a basic income. Some of them did it because of robots. They think robots are gonna displace us all. Some of them did it for other reasons, but ultimately the humanity of it is what will win the day because we should be intelligent enough and humane enough to want others to have what we would want and what we'd want our children to have, okay? And that I think is the fundamental rationale for this. But congratulations for being a frog. <laughs> I I'm, I'm, I'm very afraid of opening up another, another oh, conversation here, but, but I am going to, I'm going to do it anyways. Um, it sounds to me, and it, there's all, and I, I don't disagree with it at all. I, I think it's a great idea. I think we should uh, implement it. Um, and I would say that the, the political cover for it to get it done, the country that implements it first and most broadly will be the most competitive country. So, you know, if the U S got out of its own way and did it, it would immediately give the U.S. a productivity boost. Well, not immediately, but 16 years from now, we'd have a productivity boost. We'd have an intellectual boost. We'd have a, an innovation boost. You know, all the kids that come out of this with with better educations, with better, more food in their stomachs, all that kind of stuff would be better off, and that would boost the U.S. in the future. Or pick your country, Canada, wherever. Right. So, do do you ever make that argument to politicians? Uh, yeah, I, I do, and and. We we've found, it's very interesting that gradually the political debate around basic income has evolved. Mm. Funnily enough, the the biggest opponents over the last twenty years that I've found have been trade union leaders and social democrat and labour parties. Interesting. They've been the most. Uh, I mean, the far right. The, you know, conservative parties, you expect them to be hostile to it because they're, they're class-ridden. But, but, but any, anybody outside that, trade union leaders have been, have been particularly blocking it. They want people in jobs. Well, I, 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 I don't think that that's a very progressive stance. And I don't think that in the context of today's globalized capitalism, we are going to get back to a situation where rising real wages will be widespread, okay? You have, you, China is coming up and Vietnam and India and all these low-income countries and they have a competitive advantage and our wages in Canada or in Europe or wherever will continue to stagnate. So if you want to improve the material living standards, you're going to have to have a new distribution system that's an economic argument, right? And I think that the political uh, resonance is improving. I agree the way you presented it because I think that the, the, the gradual realization that we're not having, not only having an insecure society, 
with chronic uncertainty, with more and more pandemics and the equivalent shocks that are coming through the system, which we can't predict and we can't protect ourselves against it, more and more we're seeing a nastiness mm. in society, mm -hmm. a sort of egotistical, narcissistic nastiness. The other, we hate, there's, there's more and more of that. And that stems from people being fearful and the political debate being based on ignorance and silos and the whole manipulation because people are not participating in the life of the polis. They're not educating in the sense that education was meant to be. You know, Thomas Jefferson said the primary objective of education should be to teach people how to be citizens, not how to make more money, not how to be super clever in the financial community or in the business studies or whatever, but to be citizens. And I think one of the biggest needs today is to decommodify our education systems. Yeah. If we want to reinvent what we mean by human wealth, we have to say human wealth is the ability to learn and to be social animal and a political animal and an educated person linking up with nature, being in control of our time. This sort of perspective is beginning to shape, take shape. And I, I, I say, bring it on, because the next generation of young political leaders coming out of university, coming out of the commons, coming out of the extinction movement, the rebellion, and so on, I think will understand this need for a softer, convivial form of progressive thinking. And that will, that will mean giving up values much greater, greater emphasis. Uh, I hope that's going to happen. I believe the energy out there is going to make it happen. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of a, a, a bit of a segue into the, the next thing I want to ask, which is, so you know, I, I just uh, finished reading the, the Corruption of Capitalism. And, you know, as I was reading that book, I was just feeling myself kind of slump further and further into my chair and be like, wow, this is like really heavy stuff. And one of the things that I had trouble reconciling with um, maybe kind of some of the like the pessimism of, you know, the the changing class structure and how people's like a certain group of, of people's lot seems to be getting worse and worse is that if you look at global statistics on living standards across the globe. So, you know, be a child mortality, uh, women's education, um, global poverty, all of those things. We've seen amazing advances in the last 20 years. And like, if you know, if you look into that data of, of those attainment statistics, how do you put that together with, you know, some of the, the doom about, about saying that things are getting worse for so many people when on the other hand, things in many places seem to be getting better? Well, I don't know if you read the, the, the whole book, but the last chapter is meant to be uh, the coming rebellion and, and where I think there's, there's a lot of scope for optimism. I think, I think rentier capitalism has produced the circumstances where we are having pandemics because we're, we're treating nature just as making profits and 
just totally ignoring the need for preservation of balance with nature. It's leading to chronic inequalities which produce tensions and ultimately uh, produce wars. I wrote a book on Russia. In fact, I wrote two books, one on Russia and one on Ukraine back in the 90s, early 1990s. And I said, you said in those books, so I, I don't, I'm not saying that wise after the event. I mean, I, it's actually in print that the way that capitalism is being developed, we're going to have a kleptocracy and chronic inequalities where the deprivations are going to lead to a deep corruption, which is going to create civil strife. And the life expectancy plunged in those countries in the 1990s. The average life expectancy of a Russian fell from 64 to 58 in a few years. Life expectancy fell that much. You now have a situation in the United States where the average life expectancy has been declining, declining, not rising. And that, that is echoed also in, in Britain. It's a situation which is accompanied where we have a pandemic of stress, where we have a situation where millions and millions of people are taking psychiatric treatments, okay? I saw some figures the other day that, that one in every four adults in rich countries is taking some sort of mental health treatment each year. That's not the sign of a healthy society. Your figures reflect the fact that China has emerged as a superpower and life expectancy and incomes in China have shot up. And China is 1.4 billion people <laughs> and India is, is also moving in a, in a positive direction in those terms, okay? Now we have a situation where we have a retake of a crisis of the 1930s, if we're not careful, where you have a rising superpower, a declining one in the United States, and a situation where more and more the income is flowing to finance and rentiers. This is not a situation that's going to have stable outcomes, if we're not careful. Trump is a phenomenon that stems from a rotten model, okay? A rotten model. He would not have emerged if the society was a healthy one, all right? And the fact that he is still super popular, I find totally terrifying, totally terrifying, because you could have either Trump coming back or someone a little cleverer who will be uh, a Trump Mark II. We, we, we are seeing these possibilities. They are not necessary. They're not necessary. If we could only understand that we need to dismantle rentier capitalism, including the intellectual property rights system that I described in that book that you just mentioned, it is obscene. 
We've just seen with the pandemic, okay, these three super mega multinational corporations led by Pfizer. Pfizer has been fined billions of dollars for false claims and for using unproven methods of treatment over the years and still is allowed to become a phenomenal multi-billion dollar profit-making machine because it's got government subsidies just as uh, the others did. And I mentioned that in the preface of that book you mentioned. They didn't take the risks. We took the risks because they got public funding and then they get the, the patent and the patent gives them a monopoly income for 20 years. So nobody else, unless they license it and make more billions, is allowed to produce the medicine that could be reducing COVID and the consequences of COVID around the world. But we have a rotten intellectual property rights system where you, corporations are patenting giving themselves monopolistic profits. The whole system was designed, incidentally, by Pfizer in 1994. They led the campaign that led to TRIPS that is, has this globalized system of, of intellectual property rights, so that now 20% of the world income is going to intellectual property. But this, this is, as Thomas Jefferson again, second time I mentioned him, which is unusual, Thomas Jefferson understood. He said, ideas in nature cannot be made the subject of property. Ideas belong to all of us. When the man who invented the polio vaccine, when he, when he was interviewed on television by the famous uh, journalist, uh, he, in 1955, John Salk, he said, when he was asked, well, who, who owns the patent? I see Jonathan knows this story. Who owns the patent? He said, well, nobody. The sun, it belongs to everybody. It's needed for humanity. That's a healthy society. Every yes, you should have rewards, but you shouldn't have property rights that stretch into the future. It's ridiculous. Every Rotarian knows that story. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it's a story. It is a story because, you know, it, it has enormous consequences when we see these producers of the, the vaccinations who've made billions, but meanwhile, unnecessary numbers of people are dying. Yeah. And what sort of system is that? Indefensible. Okay. That's what it is. It's indefensible. Broken. Yeah. It's broken. And it's rentier capitalism where the financiers will not give an inch. And that's why, you know, I mean, BlackRock at the moment is the biggest asset manager in the world. And if you look through its uh, Aladdin algorithm system, it controls about 20% of the world's stocks. Okay. We don't understand the Aladdin algorithm, nobody does. I don't think Larry Fink understands it, but it's actually manipulating stock prices around the world. And more and more BlackRock 
is becoming the power of the world. So three of Biden's top appointments, economic appointments, come from BlackRock. The revolving this door is, continues. Exactly. It's getting, it's getting smaller, but it's, it's Goldman Sachs and BlackRock these days. They, they alternate between the two of them. In Britain, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer was apprenticed to Goldman Sachs, and many people in many top government positions and, and in banks have been in Goldman Sachs, but BlackRock is coming up very, quite, very quickly. Yep, it's, a, sure. it's a system that's out of control. Okay, well, Guy, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Um, we don't want to keep you from the uh, glass of wine that you mentioned uh, <laughs> the beginning. off camera at the beginning. No, I'm looking of the show. forward to it. I'm parched. You know, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, but th- look, thank you very much for spending this time with us. Thank you for sharing your ideas with our audience. Um, I hope uh, that, you know, from this, maybe some people will be able to have those labels at the tip of the tongue that, you know, the vocabulary is so important because it, it really allows you to think about problems in particular ways. And, uh, you know, I want to. Thank you for sharing that with us today. Thanks, Guy. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. Cheers.